Life is a journey from one place to the next, always in continual motion. Some seasons are filled with awe and wonder, while some are filled with hardship and pain, each step more difficult than the last. Still, the journey doesn't end. It's always moving forward. You find strength in your feet striking the pavement, one step at a time, as you become closer and closer to your destination. All the while being guided by this still, soft voice that says, keep going, we're getting closer, you're almost there. Morning, how we doing? Good, 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 good to see y'all. That song makes an excellent car song. You know what I'm talking about with a car song, when you can get in there and sing. For those of us that can't sing, we have to choose songs in a car that we can sing, right? And so, man, I was standing backstage and just listening to you guys. Um, Man, that is an incredible song, and and I love um, the heart behind it. And, and man, champion of heaven, he made a way for us, and and it ties in so much to what we're talking about um, today. And so, if this is your first time, we're so glad that you're here. Welcome um, we are actually continuing on in our series called Taking Ground. Um, we've been at it for six weeks now. Um, and so it, we've seen some incredible things um, happen over the past six weeks. And we started this series off um, by breaking ground on our new building. You know, But the premise of this series is not about breaking ground on a building. The premise of the series is that God has called us to take ground for his kingdom. And, and that's our heart here. That's our focus here. And so um, we've, we've loved that. And one of the things I love about the book of Joshua is probably one of my favorite books, um, in all of scripture is, is there's no book, um, this, that it's more evident that we have a God that fights for us and that we have a God that is on our side. We have a God that wants to make a way, um, for us and, uh, and, and to get us there. And, and whether we're a believer or a non-believer, we're a non-believer. He's fighting for our hearts. He hasn't given up on us. He's coming. And if we're a believer, he's fighting to get us to where he wants us to be and where he wants us to go, no matter what we're going through. And so I hope you've been encouraged. I hope you've been challenged. Um, and uh, we're going to start off in the book of uh, Joshua chapter 10 uh, and continue there. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open up there with me. Um, and I know you'll see the same premise in the text this morning. Um, we're going to start in verse 14 and then we'll go back. So I'll start at the end and just read one verse and I'll pray. And then we will jump back and, and look at it from the start. Um, so read... Uh, with me here. Verse 14, Joshua 10, verse 14 says this, there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord obeyed the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, God, for this morning. Lord, I thank you for, God, just even the lyrics to that song. Thank you for making a way for us, God. You are, you are everything to us. You're our Lord. You're our Savior. God, you're our life. Lord, you're our rest. You're everything that we could ask for in a Savior. You have um, given us more than we ever deserved, given us more than we've ever asked, Lord. So we ask as we dig into your word um, this morning, God, that you'd be here with us, God, that you'd open our minds, you'd open our hearts um, up to hear from you, Lord. I pray that we um, would have an encounter with you today, God, that nobody would leave here um, the same, Lord. So if you'd come with us, God, we need your help. Help us in Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so, but like I was saying earlier, there, there's, there's no greater book that shows us an emphasis on God fighting for us more than Joshua. And, and what I want to talk about today is just like he was fighting for the Israelites in the book of Joshua, 
He's fighting for us because we are the Israelites in the New Testament. We are the people of God um, from, from that perspective. And, and, you know, the thing is, is when you look through the book of Joshua, even if, you know, you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Jericho, right? These guys walk around the city seven times, blow some trumpets and the walls fall down and they go in and take this territory. And, you know, so I'm reading the book of Joshua and hopefully you've caught the same premise. It's, it's almost like, God, like, man, he is really wanting them to get to this promised land, right? What is this big deal with the promised land? And so a couple questions that have just come to my heart and, and, and I want to talk about today is one, um, what is God fighting for? Like, what's the big deal with this promised land, right? Why is he fighting for them to get to this promised land um, so much? And then the second question is, what's the big deal with the promised land, right? That's the second question that obviously we have to beg. If he's fighting to get them to this certain place, then the other question is, well, what's the big deal um, with this promised land? And so um, in order to do this, I, I may have to ask you guys to put on your thinking caps this morning, um, because one of the things we have to do to understand the, the, the really the hugeness of this promised land, if that's a word, I don't know if that's a word or not, but I just made it one. So the hugeness of the promised land um, is we have to understand the big picture of the Old Testament, right? And so um, I've actually created a little, uh, I didn't create it, I read it in a book, and so I, I made Sean create it so that I could talk with you through it, but um, a little chart to help you read through the Old Testament. How many of you ever been just reading through the Old Testament and you're like, what the heck is going on? Anybody? I mean, I, I do that all the time. And, and in order to, to get a good picture of the Old Testament, we have to see kind of what God's doing from an overall perspective. And so I, I want to start with you guys through um, th- this little chart and I hope it'll be helpful for you. I'm going to put it on the screen behind me. Um, and, and hopefully it'll be good. So, um, if we can get it up here, um, can everybody see that? You can't, you might have to move forward, but, um, I won't be mad at you. I promise. Um, and so you see, it's like a chart. I'm a chemistry major. I deal with charts. So bear with me. Um, so anyway, we see on one side, we see the bottom, we have a timeline, right? So the timeline of the old Testament on the other side, we have proximity to God's design, which is just kind of a level of when the world was, was functioning at the way that God designed it. Right. And so if you know anything about the Bible, the Bible starts off in what? The Garden of what? Eden, right? And and so what we see in this Garden of Eden is we see God's design for the world playing out perfectly, right? And, And so that's the bottom little line on there. That's kind of God's design for the world is God's people in God's place under God's rule and God's blessing, right? So we see this in the Garden of Eden. We see it functioning the way that God intended it to, right? God's people, who are they? Adam and Eve in God's place. Where's God's place? The garden of Eden under his rule and under his blessing, right? Those two things are simultaneous. They, they, they correlate together to be under God's blessing. You have to be under God's rule. And so when the Bible starts off, we see Adam and Eve in the garden where God wants them and they're doing what he told them to do. They're, they're tending the garden. They're doing all these things and they're walking in a relationship with him. They experience utopia, right? Would be the good word. Perfection. This is perfect fellowship with God. But then we know what happens. Sin, right? Sin enters the garden and they fall, right? And so what happens in this fall is God's design for us, for people is completely destroyed, right? Because no longer are they God's people, right? Because sin separates us from God. No longer are they in God's place because, because, because of sin, they get kicked out of where? The garden, right? They're not in there anymore. And then they rebel against God and no longer are they under his rule. They're, they're not under his blessing 
anymore. And so we, we see that happen and play out in the garden. And then here's the thing I want us to see is right after that, uh, we have a promise given to us a little bit, you know, after Genesis three, we start seeing the evil come into the world and get, you see Cain and Abel murder, all those things start coming in to the world. And so we see just evil pick up and ramp up and ramp up all the way until he floods the earth. And then he brings about this person by the name of Abraham, right? And so when he brings about Abraham, he gives Abraham a promise, right? And then the rest of the Old Testament, this promise is just playing out, right? And so what I want us to see today, I know it'll help us understand, and this will just help you understand how to read the Old Testament, is as God plays out this promise, what we see is it's a progression to get us back to the garden. Does that make sense? And so the way that God goes about bringing out his plan is just a storyline to get us back to this perfect utopia where we can um, be God's people under God's place under God's rule and blessing. And what we have to see is we see that in four ways. So um, have I lost y'all with the chart yet? Can you see kind of where I'm going right here? You got Eden at the top. They're experiencing God's blessing, right? Everything in God's design. You come down the fall, right? So they get way out of God's, God's blessing, God's design. And then we see this promise, the dashed line coming with a promise. And all of this, you can go to the next slide, Will. Um, now we start seeing this idea of the promise playing out. And the way that it plays out is the rest of the Old Testament. It plays out in four ways, right? And so the four ways that it plays out is first, the Exodus, right? So the first part is for God to get a people back for himself, right? He has to buy them back, right? So what happens in the book of Exodus? Moses leads who? The people out of slavery into uh, God's place, right? They start going into God's place. And so what we see is God create for himself a people, right? And so the first part of God's design is now back intact, right? And then the next thing that comes about is the law, right? So now they come out of Egypt and they get into this wilderness and they're wandering around and then God gives Moses the law, right? Why does he give him the law? Because in order to experience God's blessing, we have to be under what? God's rule, right? And so he teaches them how to live. After 400 years of slavery, they don't know what they're doing, right? So God says, hey, here's a way to live so that you can experience my blessing and live the way um, that you were created to live. And then the next part we see is the conquest, which is where the book of Joshua takes place. So I say all that to get us here so we can see how to read the book of Joshua the way that God intends for us to read it. The conquest is basically after he gives them the law, Joshua takes over from Moses and Joshua's whole premise is to get them to where? The promised land. So he starts this conquest of, that's why Joshua's one of my favorite characters in the Bible because dude, he is a warrior of all warriors, man. He is taking ground, getting God's using him to get them to where they need to go. And so we see God, um, through Joshua lead them into this land that he's promised them in the, through Abraham. Right. And he leads them to a place that, that is a place that's, this abundant, right. It's a place of missionary strategy, right? It's in the middle of everything, right? If you've ever looked at a map and saw where Israel and Canaan and all these places are, you see that they're in between Asia and they're in between Africa, right? And in that world at that time, those were kind of the known parts. And so he puts his people smack dab in the middle where they can have the best missionary status. It's also a place of, 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 of provision, right? God provides for them here. It's a place of abundance. And it's also a place where they can find rest, where they no longer have to be enslaved or wondering or doing these things um, anymore. And then the last part we see is the monarchy, right? And so we see... Um, Saul, David, and Solomon rise up, right? So we see first Kings Chronicles, all those, we see these three Kings rise up and they're like, we want a King. We want a King. We want a King. And these three Kings rise up and basically God's showing them, Hey, 
the way I want you to function and rule is I want you to have a king, right? But we all know that Saul, David, and Solomon aren't the king of kings, right? The king of kings is Jesus and is going to come on the scene. And so the thing we have to see about the Old Testament and in, in order to understand it the way that God wants us to is to see that it's painting a picture of something and see that it's a foreshadow of what God's going to bring about through the person of Jesus Christ, right? And so just to finish out the Old Testament so y'all aren't left hanging, after the monarchy, we see sin rise back up, right? We see basically Saul, David, Solomon bring about, Solomon starts worshiping himself and Israel declines again, right? 722 BC, Assyria, Babylon, they both come in, they wipe Israel out of the promised land, take them back into captivity where they're almost the same place they were in Egypt, right? And so now we see Israel's decline, but God raises up prophets, right? So Isaiah, Jeremiah, all these guys raises them up and they speak of a hope that's going to come about, a king that's going to bring it all back together to God's design. And that's where the Old Testament cuts off, right? And so the Old Testament is a story without an ending. And so you read the Old Testament, it should depress you a little bit, right? It should bring you to a point of depression. And so um, I told you you'd have to put your thinking cap on this morning. So I hope that's helpful for you as you begin to read the Old Testament. And so I, I say all that to say, let's go back to the book of Joshua, which is during which part of the picture? The conquest, right? So we have to understand that God is getting them to this promised land to paint a picture of what um, Jesus is going to bring about when he comes on to the scene, right? And so we see all that play out in the book. And so you may be asking, well, why the crap is he telling me all this, right? Anybody asking that? Okay, good. That's what I was planning on. But anyway, that's why I want you to know is so that when we read Joshua, we can actually understand what it's about. And we can understand that the reason God was fighting for them so hard to get to this promised land was because he wanted to fight to get them to a place of provision, a place of rest. And so if we look at Joshua chapter 10, and go back to the start where I want to pick up is starting in verse six. <clears throat> I think it'll be abundantly clear what God's trying to tell us through this. So let's start in verse six. And so I'll tell you one thing that's helpful when you're studying the Old Testament as well is um, when you see a concept or a word or certain things repeated over and over. Most of the time, that's the point that God wants us to take away from the passage. So as we read Joshua chapter 10, starting in verse 6, see if you can pick up on this and I'll help you. Here's verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us, right? And so since we picked up from last week, basically what's happened is, remember they cleared the sin of Achan out of the camp. Now they're back taking more ground, taking more ground. What happens is five kings actually come together and team up and go against this, this country of, of Gibeon. Or I say country, it's a tribe of Gibeon within this Canaanites and and. and Joshua had actually made a pact with the Gibeonites. And so he comes to the rescue. They're calling for him saying, dude, we need your help. We know the Lord's on your side. So here it comes. Verse eight, he says, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them for I have given them into your hands. Who has given them into your hands? God has given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal 
And the Lord threw them into a panic. Who threw them into a panic? The Lord. Before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon. And chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon. And struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven. Who threw down large stones? The Lord threw down large stones on them as far as Azekah and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord obeyed the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Right? And so over and over again, you see the Lord did this. The Lord did this. And finally, for us that are not smart, he says... The Lord fought for Israel, right? And so over and over again, we see God saying, man, he's fighting for, he's fighting for him. And the way we have to see this, we have to put ourselves in their shoes, right? Say, we are Israel. We're going into war and we're fighting. We don't really have anybody to fight out here. But if we did, you guys are the people that I'm taking with you. Congratulations. So what we're taking with you, we're standing in this battlefield. And what begins to happen is we march all the way through the night and we get to this, this, this territory, Gibeon. And we start fighting these, thing, these people. The first thing we come upon them, they just start panicking and running and scattering and doing everything else and turn their back. And it's pretty much easy. And then when they start turning and most of them get away, we start seeing these huge hailstones come down. And think about this. You're in the midst of battle. So it's hand-to-hand combat. You're sitting here with them and stones start falling down from heaven and hitting them on top of the head, but they're not hitting your people. How cool is that? You know what I mean? You're sitting there fighting the people and God's sending these stones down from everywhere and hitting them. So it's almost like selective stone throwing, right? So don't mess with God when it comes to throwing stones. That's the moral of the story. Um, The next thing we see is that God makes the sun and moon stand still so that the people can't retreat far enough and regroup and come back and fight them. And so over and over again, God makes it abundantly clear that he is fighting for Israel. He's fighting to get them to this land. And that's what he wants us to see. And if we can't see it from this passage, I can take you all the way back to Jericho where you see God give the the Jericho into their hands or the 31 other kings that God gives into the hands of Moses and Jericho because he wants to get them to this promised land. And so that's why we have to ask the question, what's the big deal with the promised land, right? Why is God fighting for these things? And so another helpful tip when you're studying the Old Testament, sorry, I'm just full of tips for you guys this morning. Um, Another one is if you bounce back to the first chapter of Joshua, he's actually going to tell us the the purpose of the promised land. And then we're going to look at another passage that kind of gives it away for us too. And as I was studying this this morning, or not this morning, but this past week, God kind of threw this. And so Joshua chapter one, verse 13, look at this, look at what God says. Verse 13, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord commanded you, right? So this is what Moses told Joshua saying, the Lord, your God is providing you a place of what rest and will give you this land, right? So he's given them this land to provide a place of what? Rest, okay. And then we bounce over to Hebrews, another helpful tent when you're re- or tip when you're reading the 
Old Testament is if you can find where it's quoted in the New Testament, a lot of time the New Testament writers, the Holy Spirit through them is a lot smarter than we are. So he'll tell you what the passage means in a lot of ways. And so for me, who isn't very smart, I trust them. So here we go. Hebrews chapter four, verse eight tells us this. For if Joshua had given them what? For if Joshua had given them what? Rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on, right? And so God makes his intention about getting them to the promised land very clear. He's wanting to provide for them a place of what? Rest. And so in order to understand this fully, we got to put ourselves in their shoes, right? Think 400 years, you are enslaved in Egypt, right? That means somebody else is providing your food. Somebody else is telling you what to do. Somebody is, is whipping you when they want to whip you. Somebody is doing all these things that happen within slavery. That's where you are for 400 years. Your people are there, right? And then Moses raises up and delivers you out of there. The next thing you know, you're wandering 40 years in the desert because of disobedience, right? So not only do you not have a home for 400 years, you don't have a home for another 40 years, right? And then after that, Joshua raises up and he says, no, I'm taking us to the promised land. But the next thing you know, you're in seven years of war, right? And I don't know how many of you guys know this about war, but it's not fun, right? War is something that's very hard on a country. It's very hard on a people. And, and so in order to understand it, man, talk about a place of rest after 500 years of not having a place to lay your head down, to not have a place of provision for not being able to provide for yourself. When God says, I'm taking you to a promised land to be a place of abundance, a place of rest. Think about how sweet that would be to these people. It would be very sweet. The only thing I have that can compare to it is my football coach in high school got the brilliant idea to take us to um, Southwest Mississippi, right? Is anybody from Mississippi in here? Can I talk freely? All right, here we go. Um, Southwest Mississippi Community College of all places, right? Where is that at? Nobody knows where that's at, right? And so we get this brilliant idea that we're going to travel 12, 12 hours through a van ride with all offensive linemen. You know, I told y'all last time, offensive linemen are the people that block for people. So we're not small. We are large people in a 10 passenger van. That's a lot of weight in the 10 passenger van. It's hot. Air conditions are usually broken. And so 12 hours, here we go to Southwest Mississippi. We pull up and literally the place makes Ogeechee Tech look like the Taj Mahal. I mean, it is a dump, man. And I promise you, if God had a list of places of hell on earth, Southwest Mississippi Community College would be top three easy. And so he pulls us up to this place, man, and we're there for two weeks and, and they do all of their drills in a sandbox. Can you imagine that? It's like going to the beach. We're full pads. I mean, it is like punishment, man. We are in there and doing these things and we stay there for two weeks and, and we get there and, and I remember coming home and I've never ever felt so good about coming home, man. The smell of my truck, when I got into my truck, when I got home, I was like, Yes. You know what I mean? And, and, and think about that when you've been on like a long trip, that's just been exhausting and all this stuff. And you come back home. How sweet is that? Right. It's one of the sweetest things ever. And so think about these people that have been for 500 years. They've been wandering out through wars, enslaved, all these different things. And when God gives them a land, man, it would be a land that is awesome for them, you know, and it would be a place of provision, a place of great rest. And so the thing I want us to see is that that same God that was working for them back then to fight, to give them a place of rest. Guess what he's doing for us now? He's fighting the same thing to get us to a place of rest. And so that's my takeaway. If you got a pen, write this down, just like God was fighting for his people then. 
He's fighting for us now, right? If we are in Christ, God is fighting for us. If we are not in Christ, if we don't know him, he's fighting to get us in Christ because he wants what's best for us, right? And so just like God fought to bring the Israelites into a place of rest, he's fighting for that same rest for you and for me. And, and when I say rest, I'm not talking about a nap, right? Everybody loves a nap. I know y'all like naps, but what I'm talking about is rest for your souls, right? Rest is when you find the thing that your soul has longed for, right? And it's quenched. So rest is that, that place where you find what your soul's been longed for the whole time. And, and, and so here, here, I heard a pastor say it this way that I love. He says, one of the greatest evidences that we've experienced the gospel is that our lives are characterized by a sense of supernatural rest, right? And so the cool thing about Christians is, man, we don't have to fight for victory. We're fighting from victory because Christ has already won the victory for us on the cross. And so all we have to do is trust, put our faith in him and surrender our life to him. And now we fight from victory. It changes everything, right? Because no longer are you doing things to try to earn the favor and, and, and clean yourself up to get to God, right? He says, no, in Christ, you're righteous. In Christ, you are clean. In Christ, you are perfect, right? Now live your life in a way that is empowered and grateful to the fact that I've given you that. Does that make sense? And so it changes everything about our lives. And so I also um, heard another person say it like this. God's true rest did not come through Moses and Joshua, but through Jesus Christ, who is greater than either one, right? Joshua led the nation of Israel into the land of their promised rest. However, that was merely the earthly rest which was only a shadow of what was to be involved in the heavenly rest, right? And so the rest that we have in Christ and the rest that we're going to experience when he comes back and knocks sin out of the world forever is, is completely what the Old Testament is trying to point us to. He says, just like this land of Canaan, this land flowing with milk and honey was so great for these people who had been for 500 years ensnared in slavery and all these different things. He says, when you find Jesus... That's the same thing that your soul is going to find. It's going to find that rest that it's been longing for. And so that's what my application for today is. Write this question down. How would it change the way we lived our lives if we believed that God was fighting for us? All right, listen to that again. How would it change the way that you live your life? How would it change your outlook on life if you believed that the very same God that was fighting for them is fighting for you? It would change things. I promise you, man, all week God's been, been really, really working on my heart through this. And, and I know that it's changed me. And so I want to give you four ways that it's changed my life. And I hope they'll be encouraging to you. And so how has it changed my life? The first way is that if I understood this and if I embraced this, the first thing I would do is I'd quit fighting him, right? I'd quit fighting him. I'd quit fighting his plans and surrender to him, right? And so I'd understand that God's plan is good for me, Right? And so I wouldn't be like a little kid with his parent. Side note. Um, does anybody have a leash for their kid in here with the little monkey thing on the back? All right. So I can speak freely again. Here we go. Um, man, when you, when I see that thing, I mean, I was literally thinking, thinking, I'm thinking about this message all week. And so I go down to Savannah um, to see the fireworks at River Street. And literally, I think like every other kid that I see has a monkey on their back with like a leash on them, you know, with their mom walking behind them. And I'm like, man, if my parents did that to me, 
I would kill him. Um, anyway, but so when I think about that, that's what I think about. It's like little kids fighting away from God. And I think about us trying to fight away from God, but God's got a leash and he's trying to just reel us back in. Right. Uh, obviously it's not a monkey, hopefully, but, um, anyway, man, it doesn't work. Right. And so when we fight God's plan for us, it's almost like we, we think he's trying to take something from us. Right. So the reason God tells us not to, to have sex with our boyfriends before marriage or the reason he tells us not to, to lie or the reason he tells us not to commit adultery on our wives. So the reason he tells us to do all these things is because he's trying to hold back on me, right? Those things will satisfy me. But no, God's saying, no, if you want your life to be good and live under the blessing of God, don't do those things. They're not good for anybody, right? And so God's very good. And, he, and, and so I just thought about, man, quit trying to fight God, and I'm saying this to myself, quit trying to make my own plans and just surrender to his, you know, it would change things. If I believe that, that his plan was perfect, that his plan was great, you know, because that's the thing the old Testament shows us too, is think for 40 years, what the Israelites been doing, wandering around right in that desert. They just wondered because of their disobedience. And so they spent 40 years wondering because they wanted to make their own plans, right? Because they wanted to do it their way. And God was just screaming at them. Hey, do it my way. I'm going to take you to a place that's going to give you rest. I'm going to take you to a place that's good. And I know God sees the same thing in our life. And that's the thing we have to realize is that no matter what we're walking through right now, God has a plan. He sees the big picture, right? It's hard for me to understand that sometimes that I can only see what's around me, right? So I can only see what I'm walking through right now, what's in front of me right now. But when God looks at my life, he sees Billy as a kid all the way to Billy in eternity. And he sees, Hey, this one little thing that I got to take him through is going to prepare him for the rest of his life and, and being a testimony to other people. And so I challenge you with that today is that don't fight God's plan. God's got a purpose in what he's doing in your life. I don't know how bad it is. I don't know how good it is, but I can promise you this. God is working and he wants to work through it. And so trust him and quit fighting him and just surrender to him. I promise he, he loves to teach us through hard times as good as he does through good times. The second thing we do, we, we quit doing is I'd quit living in fear and doubt and worry, right? Because if I understood that a God was fighting for me, he had my best in mind. He was trying to bring me to a place of rest. I wouldn't live in fear and worry anymore, right? So many people on the, in this world live out of fear, right? They live out of worry about things like, are my kids going to be okay? Right. They spend their whole life just worried about that. Right. If their kids are not with them, they're like, where's my kids? Where's my kids? Where's my kids? Right. Or this or that or the other or, or doing these things. The other, a lot of us spend our life in fear of abandonment, right? Because of something that happened to us in our past. We, we, we think that every person that comes in our life for a meaningful relationship is going to somehow walk out on us and be and abandon us or do things. And so we spend our whole life not letting our guard down because we're scared that this person's going to abandon us or walk out on us, right? And, and, and it hinders our relationships with other people, right? Another thing we do is we, we live in fear and worrying that we're not good enough, right? We won't add up, right? I can't be good enough to, to get a husband or a wife or I can't be good enough to get into med school or, or, or PT school or whatever it is that we spend, or I'll never be cool enough to hang out with this group of people, or they'll never accept me for who I truly am. Right. And so we live in fear and worry that that's going on. But what does God tell Joshua over and over again? He says, Joshua, take heart. He says, be encouraged. He says, do not what 
fear, take courage over and over again. You'll see that all throughout the book of Joshua. He says, do not fear, take courage. And if anybody had a place to worry, Joshua was fighting a group of five people. I don't know if any of y'all been in a fight, but five verse two is not good odds, right? You see five dudes come out, unless you're Chuck Norris or Steven Seagal, it's not a good, not a good place, right? And so if anybody had a place to worry, it was Joshua, but God over and over told him, do not fear, take courage. I'm fighting for you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Right. And then even Jesus, when he comes on the scene, y'all remember in in Matthew chapter six, where he starts talking to the people, he says, do not worry. He says, don't worry about the food you'll eat or the clothes that you'll wear. He says, if, if I clothe the lilies of the field or I feed the birds of the air, how much more will I provide for you who are my children? Right. And so he says our only job is to seek first the kingdom of God, right? So what's our part in it? Obedience. We seek God and he provides for us and he does things. And so we would no longer live out of worry if we believe that our God was fighting to provide for us. He's fighting to, to, to be on our side. He is on our side. So many people um, don't believe that. And so many times I catch myself knowing that but not living that way, right? And so the, the third thing we do is I'd spend more time getting to know him, right? Who doesn't want to know a God that is fighting to bring you to a place of rest, that's fighting to, to, for you to know the thing that very satisfies your soul, right? That's a good God. Who does not want to know that God? I'd spend more time with him. That is, and, and, and I ask myself the question, why is he fighting for me so much? Like, why did he fight in such a way? Why did he win the fight by sending his son to die on a cross to make a way champion of heaven? You've made a way so that I can know you, right? Why did he do that? Because he loves you, right? That's it. That's the only answer because he loves you, right? Who doesn't want to know a God that loves them that much, right? Who doesn't want to know a God that doesn't just stop at salvation, but says, Hey, I'm going to give you my spirit. And that spirit's going to walk with you for the rest of your life and grow you into the person that I want you to become. And it's going to give you more and more rest. That is a good God. And, and I want to know him more and more every day. So the first thing I do is I quit fighting him. The second thing I do is I quit living in fear and doubt and worry. The third thing I do is I'd spend more time getting to know him. And lastly, the fourth thing is that I'd have confidence to take my next step, right? If I knew that God was fighting for me and that he had my best in mind, that he, he had, his plan was better than my plan, when he put a next step on my heart, guess what I'd do? I'd take it with confidence because I know without a shadow of a doubt that his plan is what's best and that he has a good plan and he wants to teach me through this. And he's, he's working for my good. That's so hard for us to understand. And I don't know how God deals with you, but I know, um, if you're anything like me, Brandon always tells us to, man, what's your next step? What's your next step? What's your next step? Right. All the time. And that's a great thing because a lot of churches don't challenge you in that. And, and I'm glad that we have that culture. And, but sometimes I find myself asking like, man, how do I know my next step? Right. I, I feel like I've done everything that I'm supposed to do. Um, or either, you know, God hasn't made something clear. I definitely don't think I've done everything, you know, cause God's definitely still working on me more than probably most of you guys. But, um, anyway, man, when God puts something on your heart, anytime you open God's word to read, anytime you pray, anytime you come to church, God, I don't know if he works this way with you, but he always puts one thing there, right? There's always one thing either on my heart. There's always one thing either. Every time I open my Bible, it's like, man, God, again, really you're doing this. Or when I start praying, God's always like, man, really? 
You still hadn't dealt with this? You still hadn't done this? You still hadn't forgiven this person? Right? You still have bitterness in your heart that's just eating away at this person? You still hadn't gotten to a connect group? You still hadn't started serving in the church that you call home? You still hadn't started reading your Bible consistently? You still haven't went back and got prayer for that one thing that you know you need prayer for? You still haven't asked anybody for help from this addiction that you're secretly struggling with? Right? And God just continually presses those things on our heart. And if you read the passage that we came from in Hebrews, the thing that God says over and over again, He says, don't harden your heart. I want you. I love you. I want what's best for you. Come to me. And man, if we knew that our God was fighting for us, we'd have confidence to take our next step, no matter what it is, no matter how scary that next step is. Maybe God's calling some of you guys to go and share the gospel with somebody who you don't think they'll react well to it. But I promise you, God has a plan. And when he puts things on our hearts and when he speaks to us through his word, when he speaks to us through Brandon or he speaks to us through whoever's up here, he has a purpose in it. So have confidence when we take those next steps. And I wanted to close with this scripture in the book of Matthew. And if you have this, if you have your Bible with you, open up with me to Matthew chapter 11. Because, you know, the, the thing about this is, is Joshua wasn't the only person that was concerned with our rest, right? And, and I love this passage because I, it's probably one of my favorite things that Jesus ever said. And Jesus comes to... In Matthew 11, he just got through dealing with this city that was, that they hardened their hearts. They, re, they wouldn't repent whatsoever. They saw him and they went the other way, right? But then the very next thing that comes out of Jesus' mouth is in verse 28. He says this. He says, he reminds them that, that, that God, God's sovereign and he draws people to him. And he says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find what? Rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a promise. What a promise. And so Joshua wasn't the only person that was trying to bring rest to his people. Jesus came to bring rest to us. And the only place we'll ever find rest is in our relationship with him. And, and, and there's, I know there's a ton of people who maybe you're here for the first time, or maybe you came with somebody, or maybe you, you know that your soul is not at rest. Maybe you're seeking after other things to try to find this, this, to quench this longing and fulfillment that you have inside of you. Maybe that's you today. And I'd say, man, that offer the same offer that was on the table 2,000 years ago is on the table today. And God wants to give you a place of rest. And so I'd ask you that this morning. Is that you? Are you in here? And, and you know you've been chasing after other things to try to find the very thing that only God can give you. Doesn't it make sense that the only person that can give us true rest, the only person that can satisfy our deepest longing is the person that created us? How simple is that? That's the offer that's on the table today. And so I'd ask you that. I want to give you that opportunity this morning. If, if, if you're in here and you have not come to Jesus to find this rest that he provides, to find this fulfillment that he offers, I'd ask you to surrender your life to him. 
And we want to celebrate with you, you know, and a lot of people ask, well, why do y'all make people stand up at the end of every service? One, we want to celebrate with you, but two, we want to give you some information. We want to get you on the right path. We want to give you a reading plan. We want to give you a Bible. We want to give you the things that it takes to, to, to get on your way as you begin to read. We want to walk alongside of you in that. And so if you're here today and you know, today's the day that you say, Lord, I'm, I'm not fighting you anymore. I'm coming to you. And I want you to save me. I'd ask you to stand up. Will you do that for me? Is there anybody in here? All right, good. Maybe maybe you're in the same place that I was in this week. Maybe you're reading these scriptures, you're hearing this, and... Maybe you've kind of gotten away from God a little bit. Maybe you've forgotten where our true rest comes from. Maybe you've forgotten that that God is the person that gives us our righteousness, right? God is the person that provides rest for us. He gives us an identity that we can rest in. And so maybe that's you today. Maybe you've just been wandering off and and it's time to come home. And I'd, I'd say the same thing that God said to me this week. Billy, I don't know why you try to run off and find rest in other things. I don't know why you try to find fulfillment in in, in other things, whether that be a wife, whether that be what people think of you, how good you preach, whatever that is, how good you are at your job, how good of a dad or mom that you're going to be or whatever it is going on in your life. God wants to be that place. And I'm telling you, it changes things when we live from a place out of rest versus living living from a place to earn it. And so I challenge you with that this morning. I want to pray for you and and then we'll get out of here. So let me pray for you. Lord God, I do just thank you so much for this morning, God. Thank you for just your grace and your mercy, Lord. I, I still cannot get over how cool it is that we have a God that fights for us. No matter where we're at, no matter what we're walking through, Lord, you want to walk with us. Lord, one of the awesome things about marriage is the fact that we have a partner to walk through life together with, somebody in our corner, somebody who will always walk with us, never abandon us. And Lord, I believe with all my heart that that's just a picture of who you are. And Lord, so I pray this morning that that people would see for the first time, God, that you are in their corner. If they are in Christ, you are in their corner and that you want to walk through life with them, God. And their next step is crucial and you teaching them to trust them, God. So I pray this morning, Lord, that if if somebody's dealing with something, God, they need prayer, they need anything, Lord. I know the first way um, for the first part of repentance and reconciliation is telling somebody, Lord. So I pray that as our prayer team is over here, Lord, that people would take the opportunity to to, to go and talk with them, Lord. And maybe they don't even think it's going to mean that much, but I promise you, Sometimes the best way to ask for help is just to tell somebody, Lord. So I pray this morning, God, that with a room this size, I know people are walking through things, God. So I pray that you would be with them, Lord, that you would remind us daily, God. We're prone to wonder all the time. I pray that you would remind us that our rest comes from you and you alone, God. So we're thankful for this day, Lord. I pray that you would send us out this week, God, to be a light um, for your kingdom, for your glory, God. Use us to reach other people, God. Use us. Um, I pray that people would look at our lives and see something that they don't have. I pray that they'd look at our lives and say, I want what they have, God. So I pray that over every person in here now, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy, God. Thank you for being a God who answers prayer. We love you and praise you. In Christ's name, amen.